Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Season four of the Business Integrity School is sponsored by J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. And today, I've got a very special guest with me, Paige Motes from Dell. Hey, Paige. Hey, Cindy. Great to be with you today. It's good to see you again. Let me tell you all a little bit about Paige, and then we will jump into all things ESG, which, as we know, is the topic for this season four of the video podcast. So Paige leads corporate sustainability at Dell Technology, where she oversees Dell's strategic vision and goals, as well as the stakeholder engagement. And in this role, she and her team work with very deep collaboration with a number of internal business groups, and we're going to hear more about that in just a minute. And the programs that she leads span across themes like advancing the circular economy, climate change, and really deep engagement in the supply chain. Now, prior to taking on this role, Paige had a very long uh, and very um, exciting career as the leader in the Global Ethics and Compliance Office, where she oversaw and managed Dell's ethics strategy and proactive culture of integrity initiatives, code of conduct, and all things that go along with ethics and compliance. Both of those roles, and this is the real interesting part, are complemented by over 15 years in sales and consulting. And I think that's just an amazing background to have for the work you're doing now, Paige. So with that, let's jump into the questions and welcome to this podcast. We are so happy to have you here with us. Why don't you just start by telling our audience how in the world you got from sales into the world of ethics and compliance and ESG? Absolutely happy to. So um, had a long career in sales, nothing specific to the ESG space for quite some time. In fact, um, I'm dating myself, but I started at Dell in the early 90s, uh, even before it was headquartered in Round Rock, Texas. It was a little smaller building in Austin. Uh, So I grew up early days in Dell, but after I left Dell in 96, I worked in a variety of different sales roles. But At a certain point in my career, I landed at a firm in both the sales and consulting capacity that advised chief ethics and compliance officers, officers uh, within the ethics and compliance space. Right. I'm so excited about that work. And it happened right as uh, the fall of Enron occurred and all organizations where culture and accountability and ethics and compliance became not just a buzzword, it became an incredibly deep part of what businesses were focused on. And then I was hooked, right? So I spent about a decade, uh, well, I take that back. I spent a number of years with that firm. And then I came to do in-house work at Dell in 2009 and really deeply engaging across the company and seeing what it's like for a big organization with global scope and scale to try to you know, marry profit, profit and purpose and 
really ensure that we're doing business with integrity, it allowed me to touch a lot of different places mm-hmm. in the company mm-hmm. uh, where ethics and compliance touched and sustainability happened to be yeah. in which um, that occurred. So uh, now I'm in the sustainability space, but it became just a, a nice little um, half magic, half planning. Somehow that happens to all of us and you end up where you are, but that's my yeah. It does. And I just think it's really great to, to share people's journeys because students need to understand that careers aren't always just linear. They sometimes go like this, you know, back and forth. And and uh, it's more like a lattice than it is a straight line. So, and I, I just think that background in sales and consulting and that kind of business practical sense has probably really helped you in both the ethics and compliance role as well as in the ESG role. It has. And I would say that one of the transferable skills that that kind of role gives you is the ability to influence without even formal authority, right? And yeah. think about in the ethics and compliance space as an yep. example, how many people do you have to touch? How many people do you have to bring along in a vision? And you're not necessarily given any formal authority or a stick to bring them along. That's um, right. And so I think that that transferable skill from sales has allowed me to implement some of that capacity within ethics and compliance and now sustainability and then thinking about broader ESG capability. That is, that's, that's great. So speaking of ESG and all things ESG, which we're focusing on this season, it uh, used to be more of a kind of a, a, a sideshow a bit, if you will, for investors at least. But now it's really, I sense just kind of front and center. And it's something that all companies are thinking about. But what does, what does, all things ESG really mean to Dell? And is it is it kind of central at Dell the way I sense it is in many other companies these days? Yeah, I would say that uh, especially over the past year to 18 months, we've seen it become even more central. Mm. So you're right. I think that just like with many other organizations, there was a time and a place where ESG was just that stuff we put out about all the other work, you're seeing much more of this pivot to how is ESG helping to define some of the strategic work that we're doing, Um, how we want to engage with the board, you know, how do we want to provide resources and time and energy beyond just even the goals that we set for a company, but also just the strategic work that we do. Um, So uh, ESG really has become much more of a driver now than just an output of other things. Mm-hmm. Do you and so you mentioned it was a, maybe a year, eighteen months ago that it really picked up some prominence. Do you think that you can identify a particular tipping point, or or what what really caused that? I think that first of all, we've seen and and keep in mind we're even a company that is still majority owned by Michael Dell and Silver Lake, right? So mm-hmm. we are not. And we are not some like some other companies where we are fully um, nothing but, you know, investors. We don't have as broad and deep of an investor portfolio as some other companies. But I will tell you, those investors that invest in the company are incredibly passionate, active, engaged. And so Um, we've seen um, an increasing level of engagement and not just tell us about your goals or tell us about what you're doing, but what is your path to getting there? A lot more level of depth and detail over the past 18 months. But the biggest pivot I think is that we've seen our customers ask more and more. 
Really? So it's no longer just an investor-oriented conversation. It is a customer conversation. Customers hmm. are more and more asking for copies of our climate disclosures through CDP. Customers wow. more and more are wanting to have deep, deep dive conversations with me and, and some of my peers across the ESG pillars. So I think that pivot really catches leadership attention. Yeah. It's just traditional stakeholders and players. It's this other really important also audience, customers, channel partners, et cetera, because they themselves are thinking about these topics and they want to know that we've got our act together too and are aligned in the direction that we're headed. Yeah. It's a part of the pivot. Yeah. Isn't that interesting to see all the different sort of stakeholder groups kind of come to the table and customers obviously being one of the groups that now want to be more informed. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Uh, so Dell as a technology company is going to be very different, I think, on the ESG, how they think about it, right? And, and determine what's material for the company than, than for, say, a consumer um, products company or a, uh, well, I mean, to some extent, Dell is a consumer products company because you make the computers, but if they're more of a tech company than, let's say, um, like Clorox or, you know, Kimberly-Clark, that they, they make, you know, products that, you know, are disposable and you're rebuying them all the time and really affects the economy, or even like a, a financial services company, like a bank or something, they're going to have very different um thoughts about ESG and materiality. So, so how does Dell think about materiality when it comes to ESG and, and what to focus on? Yeah, that is, uh, that became one of the very first things that we started to contemplate, uh, you know, a year or so ago, as we really started to make this pivot, there's two things that we knew we had to, had to do. One, we had to really ensure that all the right players in the company that need to be involved in this materiality conversation were combined into a governance body so we can all mm -hmm. be speaking the same language, the same ESG language as it were. <laughs> the second piece was, so what are the most important things we need yeah. to materiality? So yeah. we conducted a refresh and Dell's been doing materiality in the, you know, for lack of, you know, not necessarily ESG as an acronym, but all the stuff that encompasses ESG for quite some time. Every few years, we would do an updated materiality. Uh, but we did a very focused ESG materiality refresh. And then that particular group got together and said, okay, is the output, is there anything about this output that we as a collective believe doesn't quite hit the mark or is there something missing? So when we did our materiality refresh, like many organizations, we engaged all the different stakeholder groups, um, some with a pretty level of depth to be able to say, what do you think is most material? Um, yeah. impact be, you know, how is this playing into what Dell is today as a company and where we're going? And we leveraged all of that information and then that body sat down and really went through it with a fine tooth comb. And in fact, we just recently launched our, uh, our latest ESG report. Oh. It's on our uh, Dell Technologies Progress Made Real site, but we show our materiality updated grid. Mm -hmm. And in that grid, what we really try to do is say, okay, uh, materiality is a little bit different than just a risk assessment that is done inside the company, right? This right. Points. But there were some things that we thought stakeholders may not understand, some stakeholders, if that particular item really is not something that Dell 
has a big hand in. So we may change that slightly. But this particular item, you know, they put a little too low and we think it should be even higher. So what we ended up with um, is, I think, a nice mix across E, S, and G. And, uh, but that really is now what we're leveraging to ensure that we're building out operational processes that give all the right accountability and capability for those topics, um, making sure that we've got structure to ensure the proper oversight, et cetera, of all of them. But yeah, yeah. we did a reality because that's how we're going to keep ourselves focused. So in terms of speaking about focus, glad you went there. So there is a, um, there are these like open loop materials and closed loop materials that is, is talked about in the, the, the Dell ESG report. But can you just explain that a little bit for the audience and, and how both types of materials are being used in your products? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you think about the materiality that I just talked about, obvious things like climate human rights, data privacy, you know, those types of things are obviously very material, but also a big place where Dell plays, where a technology company is in this sustainable consumption and circularity space, right? And so right. these concepts of closed loop and open loop for us deeply are embedded in the sustainability principles of circular economy. Mm -hmm. So that's a place that Dell feels a great deal of responsibility to play. We also have a history of playing there pretty well, but we know we, like many other companies, we've got to do more because yeah. waste or waste in general is just a growing problem in this world. Yeah. And we've got to do a lot. So in the closed loop space, what that really means um, in the Dell context um, is that we take back electronics that are end of use from that customer. It does not mean it's the end of its life. It might okay. need another use by another customer, et cetera. But when we, we have a huge take back program, we've had it in place since 1996. When we take products back, it could even be a competitive product. We've since 2014 had what we call a closed loop plastics program, where we literally take material from returned products and we take that plastic and we're able to put it back into the supply chain to make brand new products of ours for future mm -hmm. generations of electronics. We've used that expertise and that knowledge to now have other closed loop programs around rare earth magnets from drives and now aluminum also sourced out of drives that were returned. Wow. So we keep trying to experiment with scale and expand mm -hmm. this closed loop concept because the more you can get to closed loop, A, you are reusing material over and over again and therefore not sourcing virgin material. Yeah. It also is a decarbonized material. So the carbon footprint of that product goes down. Good. Right. Um, and you also save money. Right? So you yeah. know where the source is coming from, et cetera. So all of those things are good things. Open loop is a little different. That is instead of our, um, it's kind of a trash treasure concept. Our, and it's not trash. I know that's <laughs> trash becoming new treasure it's someone else's trash becoming <laughs> waste i should have said waste but you get my i get it a great example of open loop that we have is that the aerospace industry has to use carbon fiber to make their planes lighter and stronger their scrap carbon fiber we've actually contracted with a group to help us grab their scrap 
We leverage that scrap. We apply special technology to it to make it recyclable. And we put it in our laptops, display backs, et cetera, to make our products lighter and stronger. Um, so we have several examples of open loop. Um, one of them is a funny, um, people love it. It's a polymer that is sourced from the, or it's a resin that's sourced from the polymer that sits between the two panes of glass in your car windshield. So at the end of life of a car and they're sitting in the junkyard, we work with a third party to extract that polymer and it coats our eco-friendly Dell backpacks. Wow. So you know, maybe an 85 Camaro. That was cool. When I was in <laughs> exactly. Uh, they, uh, might be on a backpack now. So that's another example of that. That is really awesome. That is, so, you know, someone's trash waste is another company's treasure. (laughs) That's really, really cool. And it's a great way, I think, to really put some um, specificity around what this circular economy means. I mean, people say that word, but being able to have real life examples, I think is really valuable. So that's just great. And it's a lot of innovation, a lot of, a lot of locking arms with other people. So, um, that's, you know, we're not the only ones doing that kind of work, but we're really proud that we're involved in that kind of work. That's really, that's so important. So, okay, now I'm going to turn to a, to a question that I think is, um, it's particularly difficult sometimes to do with inside companies, and that's taking these ESG goals and actually, I would call it operationalizing them. So, putting something measurable behind it and deciding how are we going to take this goal and translate it into something that is achievable and that people are going to be accountable for it and that you're going to be able to improve on it over time, right? So can you give some examples of of how Dell has done that um, and the collaborations that you've had to build behind the scenes to make it happen? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, you're right. That is the number one struggle. Coming up with a really great aspirational goal is usually a little easier than operationalizing it to make sure you're literally hitting the targets and making progress. Uh, So one of the things that, and many companies have a process like this, we just call it offer lifecycle management or offer lifecycle program. I forget the OLP, the P stands for. I'm going to get killed for that, but um, (laughs) it is is a a process flow by which, for example, at Dell, we leverage in the development of our products. We've taken that same concept, uh, which has phase gating, you know, um, and, and put governance structures and some we're still putting in, but mostly, especially in the sustainability space, it fits really nicely because a lot of the goals that we have do touch our products, our solutions. We just talked about closed loop as an example. So what we've attempted to do is not only set up governance structures, so bodies that oversee, yes, these are the right goals. Yes, we have targets in place. Yes, we've got um, reviews of resources and progress, et cetera. But also we are identifying through this life cycle process the ability for us to um, have phase gate reviews. So when there's a new initiative that's going to advance one of the goals, it's in concept phase, maybe initially, to just scope is that indeed directionally where we need to go. And then it moves to design phase, perhaps, whereas like, what would it take to accomplish this? Then it moves to maybe planning phase. Let's work on a project plan, all the right milestones, et cetera. Let's get buy-in of how we're going to launch that, who's going to be in charge, who are the teams going to be, et cetera. 
And then you can imagine, then it becomes maybe piloting, maybe implementing, maybe scaling. I'm just yeah. getting And different companies, different groups in a company have their own flavor of this kind of thing, but it's not, it's not outside of the, the norm of what a, a lot of companies have to think through. Yeah. And I think what's new there is lots of companies have those kinds of processes that have certainly been applied for many other reasons, like, right, you know, like getting a pro- new product out to market, um, you know, making sure your internal controls for financial reporting are, you know, ticked and tied. But applying that to ESG goals is a bit new and a bit different. And I think it does cause people to think differently about how to take something that's aspirational and break it down into brass tacks. And it may mean simply like looking at what you've been doing, but looking at it in a completely different way. Like, oh, I didn't ever realize that I needed to actually think about how much upstream, you know, carbon emissions there were before this, it got to me at this point. And so that's yeah. uh, it's a different and way I of thinking. Think one of the reasons why we felt that was important, and again, some of the initiatives are still being put into the OLP phases, but sure. that's a journey, right? And so it's it, we're pivoting into that space. But I would say what it allows you to do is be much more thoughtful about how you're going to achieve those initiatives. And, and, and what you need, what you need, like, right, like the data that you need and so let's talk about that for a second. Like, how, how does Dell go about getting the data that it actually needs to figure out what you're going to measure against? Like, where is the starting line so that we know, like, when we do set the goal and we, and we do the, the project plan, we have the baseline that we're measuring against because aren't a lot of companies still struggling really to even get a good baseline and get the right data? I mean, that, that's hard. I agree. And I think you hit on probably one of the most important topics in the ESG space data. And it's not just the data you're reporting outside, the disclosure data, certainly important. But if the data you're starting from isn't good data or not the right baseline or what have you, then what you're reporting outside is suspect, right? So you are right. A big, big part of what we do and, and many companies do is really understand what's true about where you're starting from, even if it's not a good place. It's okay. It's true, right? right. So in, in the spirit of transparency, let's speak the truth, even if the numbers are low, because you have to know where you're coming from to know where you're going to. And I would say the other piece about data is that like other companies, Dell has had its struggles with data being siloed, right? So if just yeah. someone having a net zero emissions goal, right? Mm-hmm. The scope one and two data may come from this part of the business. And the scope three Category one supply chain data comes from this part of the business. And then, oh, you've got transport logistics over here and travel over there. And let's not even talk products. God only knows how I have to cobble all that together. That kind of world becomes, it's complex just by itself. But when you're faced with continual evolution of regulatory bodies, or you're being pretty much told in order to get business or in order to have investors care, you've got to have your act together. Cobbling Mm -hmm. all of that together in a trustworthy way is incredibly difficult. So for us, we've done a ton of work to really ensure what are all the places where we have data? How do we build? We're starting to build a Pandel data strategy around sustainability because so much of this data feeds off of each other. 
right? To model right, right. targets, to know if we're making progress, but yeah. also our customers now want to know reporting that's unique to what they purchased. Like they want the carbon footprint of that product and they want to know everything from the sourcing of the materials down to the end of life. And if you don't have good data, that's a really hard thing to give. So for us, it's not even just about putting those foundational places and making sure each of those groups have a solid basis of preparation document on how their data is gathered. And that's auditable by our internal and external audit firms, our teams, but also how is that information being combined properly Mm. to have an output both for internal needs and external needs. That is a real, that's a bear for people to tackle, but it's got to be to me, one of the first things you're thinking about uh, because it sets the rest of the strategy in motion. Well, it's got to require a lot of collaboration because when you think about like scope three emissions, you're talking about back in the supply chain. So you may be thinking about trying to collect data that you've you've never even had to collect before. That's exactly right. And that's where when people establish these goals, they need to really understand what data can we access today? Right. And where can we go in the near future? And if we don't have that other kind of data, what are going to be the processes we use to start gathering that? Right. That is the biggest part is mapping all of that out, knowing where your gaps are. Yeah, Yeah. that's a huge, huge step. And I think that a lot of people do not think about that when they're thinking about companies and, you know, achieving certain goals down the road, but you got to really figure out how long is it going to take you to collect the information to begin with. How how are you going to collect it in the first place? How long is it going to be collected? And do you have to get that third party assured? I mean, I'll just give you an example. We spend, you know, weeks making sure that all of our data, we've got it. But then for emissions data, we often give it to a third party and say, go Mm -hmm. assure. Well, how long is it going to take for them to assure? Mm -hmm. And how does that meet expectations on reporting deadlines, et cetera? It's a whole complex. The data concept is highly complex. Yeah, I would agree. So another, moving from one complex topic to another, there's like so many different rating agencies out there. Um, so when you are even trying to figure out how do I measure, what's the benchmark that that I should use, h- how do you try to reconcile all the different kind of rating agencies and decide which ones that you are going to appease and which ones you're going to just like kind of let sit over here on the side? Well, and, you know, couple that with because ESG is so hot, how many new groups are jumping in the fold, right? So what we thought was, you know, really intense a year ago is just becoming even more intense. I think that is another reason why I'm really happy that we have stood up this, um, what we call the ESG Executive Steering Committee, this group, this body of key leaders that all touch either ESG because they run the programs that feed into ESG or they're responsible for important pieces that have to be disclosed externally. Um, We as a collective really had to learn together. You know, there were a few people that knew this cold, but a lot of us needed to know like, what is that group and what do they do? And so we start first with an education. Let's get all of us educated on who are the groups that tend to get the most traction? Where have we been reporting for a long time? And how has that been going? and really rationalize what was a large number Mm -hmm. to, okay, who are the groups that we need to actively voluntarily engage because we think there's many stakeholders that we have that really expect us to. So where are the got to haves? 
And then on the nice to haves, how are we at a gap analysis set up to be able to deliver value to those nice to haves? And mm -hmm. some of them might be, boy, we really want to work with that. We really want to engage with that group, but we've got a gap that we need to shore up. You know, maybe there's some data we need to go grab. So maybe we need to put that as a phase two, right? So it's a lot of evaluation, a lot of gap analysis. And then of course, there are groups that you don't really have a choice. They just scrape yeah. regardless, right? right. And those, what we try to do is say, let's talk to some of these groups to understand how difficult it is it for you to get what you need from Dell? And how can we use that feedback or analysis of what we know they've scored us as to help us shore up maybe communicating more effectively, mm. maybe using a grid more easily, making that access. If they're going to scrape and give us a score anyway, mm -hmm. we might as well make the information easier to access to help that process along. Yeah. That's kind of been our strategy is the got to have the nice to haves readiness and then better communication externally so that the scrapes are scraped as accurately as possible. Right, right. So do you think for multinationals, at least, that that the, the objective would be to hopefully get to some global standard goal? Is that really achievable? Or do you think that... You know, is regulatory action even needed here in terms of, you know, the SEC, Gary Gensler's talked recently, the chairman of the SEC, about potentially requiring reporting, at least for public companies. And then where does that leave private companies? So what what do you think it's needed here? Or do you think that that corporations can and the rating agencies can kind of figure this out for themselves and whittle it down to a few? You know, I think our position is that we would like to see some some more streamlined standards uh, because simply because you absolutely, I mean, I think any company worth its salt, any company who understands this concept of purpose and profit have to be married together, understands that this is the world we're in and we are wanting to play in that space. But you cannot do the work effectively if you are scattershot in how you get information out. And yeah. so we are definitely proponents of more standardization because we think that will hold people accountable in a much more effective way. Um, you know, individuals leveraging that information will be able to compare apples to apples in a much right. more effective way. Right. Um, and we will then be able to put our effort to where it adds the most value for the most stakeholders. And then also really spend the rest of our time tr trying to go make sure that all the work we said we were going to do through that OLP process is actually happening, right? Yeah. On the promises and really making a difference. So that's the perspective we have. How realistic that is, I don't know. I do know many of us working in that vein, and I, I feel cautiously optimistic that there is a pathway there. Um, and there's some really great thought leadership groups that are helping pave the way, which we're really excited about. So we'll see. And, you know, I'm, I'm not speaking for Dell with this. I'm just for myself and maybe my past compliance background. I love it when there can be a lot of self or organizational governance that can show best practice that right. doesn't require re uh, regulation. Um, but I understand sometimes when that has to happen. But I think what Dell wants to do is try to organize in a way that we can meet the expectations of regulations if that comes mm -hmm. our way. Mm -hmm. But we still want to be able to put forth our very best effort if that doesn't happen. Yeah, I would agree. That's going to be something we're just going to have to all watch unfold together because it's going to yeah. 
take a little while, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely right. Paige, this has been a wonderful conversation. I could talk with you all day about this, but I will ask you one last question that I always like to ask all of my guests for members of the audience who want to go a little bit deeper on this topic or learn it maybe, you know, in a, in a little bit of a different way. Are there any good books or podcasts or documentaries or shows or anything that you think would just be really useful for somebody? Ooh, in the ESG space. Yeah. Oh me with the hard one, Cindy. Um, you know, I think there's a, a lot of, I'd have, I don't have off the top of my head a person or a, uh, a guru necessarily, but there's a lot of really interesting work coming out of some academic groups. I know uh, Fordham University's put some really interesting stuff out there. Um, uh, you know, there's, and I'm, I'm just calling out one, I think some of the ap- academic groups are really interesting to take a look at. Um, you know, and then I think there's also, I think it's interesting to also see some of the big uh, ticket, you know, corporate leaders, uh, CEOs that are really trying to put some effort out there um, and really showing some leadership around what CEOs think in this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, you've got people like Larry Fink and BlackRock that are really leading the charge with, yeah. um, you know, the investment community about what it means to really take ESG and make decisions from an investment standpoint, I think that's really interesting. And then also the business roundtable. I mean, I think the business roundtable has made some really interesting inroads in the ESG space and really starting to get comfortable with what they're thinking is there. I'd probably start there. Um, Sorry, you caught me off guard. No, that's good. The business roundtable website is just a really, I think, great resource. And I think everyone needs to be familiar with BlackRock, Larry Fink, and what they're doing to really push this further into the investment community, both for public companies and for private companies, both. I agree. I think they both got, I mean, those are, you know, in some cases, progressive views, but I think you're finding that some of these progressive views are really starting to color trajectories for the future. So they're not outliers. This is really where a lot of business heads and uh, a lot of investment um, organizations are going. So being smart about what those tenants are, I think is a really helpful place. I would agree. That's great. Well, we will leave it there, Paige. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to visit with you today. Appreciate it. Here, Cindy. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.